You are tuned in to the Green College Lecture Series, broadcast on CITR 101.9 FM and online at citr.ca. This podcast is sponsored by CITR. For details on upcoming lectures and other free public events at Green College, visit www.greencollege.ubc.ca and click on the events calendar. So as Daria mentioned, uh, my background is in, in neuroscience and psychology. Uh, here I work in a school of kinesiology doing um, stroke rehabilitation research, looking at ways to uh, sort of optimize uh, patient engagement and motivation in the rehabilitation process. But I decided not to really talk about that today, in part because like everyone's kind of already asked me that at dinner and I've talked about it in many 10 second bursts. So I wanted to step back and talk about something a little bit more high level um, and a very general talk uh, hopefully it will be accessible and interesting about understanding how the brain really creates the mind, right? And how does neuroscience really link to psychology? Um, I hope it doesn't let anybody down when I say this, but anyone who would claim to tell you how the brain does anything is probably not being very honest with you. Uh, it's an incredibly complex thing to understand what even the most basic functions of the brain actually do. Uh, and this is a major problem, I think, because it gets sold to us a lot of the time. Um, in, in the world we live in today, neuro has become a prefix for just about everything. 
Uh, there's neuroeconomics, there's neurogastronomy, um, there's millions of dollars being invested right now into neuromarketing. And I was reading a paper on neuropolitics the other day that was looking at fear processing areas of the brain and found that Republican voters had a, a more you know, hyperactive fear center than, than Democratic voters, which while kind of funny and politically interesting, was a, a drastic oversimplification, I think, of you know, someone's ideology, that it all boils down to one particular area of the brain you know, turning on at some, at some time. Uh, so the human brain, right, as we'll discuss, is fantastically complex. Um, and if part of it, you know, lights up on an fMRI scan like this, um, it doesn't mean that the rest of the brain is inactive. The reason why brain scans look like this is due to a number of statistical analyses and computations that go on that say, well, we think that this particular bit of activity is reliable, whereas the activity that gets detected in other areas is noise, right? It's random chance or variation that's going on for some other reason. We'll average across those and we'll make it look like you know, there's peaks. And those are sort of the reliable areas of activation. Um, which you know isn't untrue and it's not in any way unfair, uh, but it, it creates this very modular idea of how the brain is actually doing things. Uh, and the brain does things in a very distributed way. Much of your brain is on all the time. So even if we knew you know, just that, that one area of the brain was lighting up, it's in no way clear or intuitive what that lighting up actually indicates, right? what the processes are going on uh, that lead to metabolic activity in that region of the brain. Even if we could answer that question, right? It's not completely straightforward how you're supposed to uh, infer general life lessons from bench experiments in the laboratory, right? And philosophical, psychological problems um, don't reduce down very easily to brain-based hypothesis testing. So, uh, having set up kind of an obstacle for myself, right? We don't really have a clue how a lump of wet gray tissue um, creates your phenomenological experience, your consciousness, uh, or the mind. Uh, but that said, we do have some very interesting stories. Okay, so what do we know about the brain? Well, a lot of what we know about the brain comes from scientific experiments that are sophisticated versions of this far side cartoon, right? We, we poke the brain either chemically or electrically uh, in the early days, quite physically, um, to find out what different areas of the brain do. Uh, and we know that the adult human brain weighs you know, about one to one and a half kilograms. Uh, it's made up of mostly fatty tissue and salty water. Um, it's something that you can hold in your hands. And yet it seems to be critical for directing your interactions with the world, both in terms of the perception, what you can take in, and the actual action. Right, how you can coordinate your body to move in intelligent and adaptive ways uh, to interact with the world around you. The brain's essential to creating art. Right? It's capable of pondering its own existence and pondering the nature of infinity. But on the other hand, it's also deeply involved in when you eat, defecate, and have sex. So we don't want to you know, lord the brain up too much. It's a very pragmatic device. Um, but it does all these things. It's so critical to human thought, right, uh, that we, we feel it has this very special place in psychology, philosophy, and even now uh, morality. But this wasn't always the case. For a long time, people didn't think the brain really did much of anything. And the Latin word for cortex, which is the, the neocortex, the most recent brain adaptation that humans have a very large neocortex, um, the Latin word for cortex means rhyme. 
And we thought basically, well, we, they thought it was basically a fancy airbag uh, for the rest of the lower parts of your brain, which were critical uh, to your survival, which to be fair, you can injure your cortex and you know, maybe you'll forget how to talk or remember things, but you won't die. If you hurt your spinal cord, you probably won't survive. Uh, but human interest in the cortex goes back a long way. So this is one of the oldest medical documents in history. I think the oldest one to my knowledge. This is the Edwin Smith Papyrus. It's about 4,000 years old. Comes from ancient Egypt. Uh, Imhotep, a early doctor, if you will, uh, was one of the people who might have contributed to it or might have been an author. But it's really fascinating because this is about 4,000 years old and it reads like medical case histories. There's 48 separate case histories of individual people in the Edwin Smith papyrus and it descends uh, basically going from the head to the feet um, documenting different disorders, injuries, and what the doctors would have done to treat it, what the symptoms were. Um, it's just pretty amazing that they recognize you know, early on uh, the, the role of the brain in particular um, in other functions and personality and behavior. So Hippocrates in uh, antiquity, in ancient Greece, gave the brain a little bit less credence. He thought it was mostly about uh, perceiving information in the environment. And then he thought the brain actually operated pneumatically, sort of like the heart, only rather than blood, the brain was pushing lymph around in your body uh, to make your muscles move. Um, he was correct in you know, the understanding that the brain actually controls muscle activation, not quite so correct in the fact that it was lymph that was doing it. Um, this man, Alias Galus, or Galenus, better known as Galen of Pergamon, uh, it was a very early and influential physician who has given us probably most of what we know about the brain. He did a lot of early legation experiments with animals um, and also working with cadavers that gave us detailed information on how nerves actually work and, and that nerves leave the brain to travel through the body to actually innervate things like the muscles and cause movement. Um, but one of the more interesting things about Galen wasn't just his experimental work with animals or his work with cadavers, um, but he was actually a doctor to gladiators. <laughs> he was a, the, the earliest example of sports medicine, right? Um, and so what, what Galen found in his meticulous note-taking was that gladiators who get hit in the head a lot, you can see these are some exhumed skulls, uh, and marked on them are sites of injury. <coughs> Presumably, at least one of these ultimately killed this person. But, you know, before that, uh, they, they survived a few of their head injuries. And Galen noted that, you know, gladiators who got hit on the side of the head displayed very different symptoms than gladiators who got hit in the front of the head or the back of the head, right? And that if you got paralyzed, you got paralyzed on the side opposite the side where you had a brain injury. And so he set up very early on uh, some, some detailed ideas about the relationship of the brain, not only to the function of the body, uh, but to shaping personality and noticing that if you got hit in the front of the head um, or in the side of the head, you had issues with your memory, uh, with regulating your social behavior uh, and so on. But it, it actually goes back even farther still, this interest in sort of what the brain is and what it does. Uh, there's a practice known as uh, trepanation or trephination, um, and this is basically boring a hole into the skull uh, to relieve pressure uh, in the brain. There are Neolithic skulls, right, about 10,000 years old that show evidence of this, so you don't have to really imagine it very viscerally, but imagine it kind of abstractly. Someone cutting into your skull with a flint knife, you're going to be there for a while. Right? It's, there's, 
I don't know, maybe there's an alcohol-based anesthetic, but it's not gonna be pleasant. Um, and your chance of survival maybe isn't good, but the, the skulls actually show, show signs of healing after this surgery. So people were having parts of their skull removed as early as 10,000 years ago. Um, and then it continued um, through the Middle Ages, into the Renaissance, and into the present day. And the reasons why um, it's been done has changed. Like here, this was um, showing that it actually used to be used to treat um, things like uh, mental retardation, schizophrenia, well, treat. People thought it did something, it didn't, right? It, you just killed people. Um, <laughs> but it's used today uh, as a, a craniotomy, which is the actual removal of parts of the skull in order to allow the brain to swell. In the case of a head injury, you get an inflammatory response. Uh, and to keep the brain from mushing up into the inside of the cranium, uh, you have to remove a part of the skull, allow the brain to expand. As the inflammation goes down, you can, you can put the skull back, right? So this is a process that we still use. Um, you know, in a much more sophisticated sense. But things like this, uh, coming from the, the neurology or medical neuroscience, are really informative in the, terms of what we understand about the brain. Uh, so here, this is just showing you some magnetic re resonance imaging, or MRI, uh, from different types of head injuries. Uh, but over here is one of the most famous cases of head injury in the history of neurology. This is a man named Phineas Gage, who was uh, a railroad worker, who was tamping dynamite one day, and uh, the iron rod got blown back through his face and out the top of his head. And he lived, was the amazing thing. Um, and and he, he, so he, he worked with teams of doctors over the years who were A, surprised that he didn't die, uh, but, but then really interestingly, they, they were surprised in how well he actually recovered. Um, they said that he had some, some changes though in his personality saying that he'd become fitful, irreverent, and indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom. Um, impatient of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires, and at times per perniciously obstinate, yet capricious and vacillating. So a very, a very poetic medical description, in my opinion, but it, it was an interesting connection with the, the frontal lobes, which we now understand are actually quite important in regulating uh, your social behavior. It's a way you can exert your conscious influence on drives that come from sort of the bottom up, right? If, if you didn't have this area of your brain, you, you operate in a very stimulus response sort of way. Some patients with frontal lobe damage uh, show perseveration or perseverative behaviors where they'll see a stimulus and they'll respond in sort of the most habitual way. Um, another sort of humorous example was a, a neurologist who was seeing a patient um, either in the, the, the patient's home or in their home and they walked by the bedroom and the, the patient walked in and just started getting undressed. Because when you go into the bedroom, that's what you do. Right? And it didn't matter that they were in their physician's house and it was their physician's bed. It was, that's a bed. I take my clothes off and get in beds. And so they had this very bottom-up drive um, and they couldn't exert influence from their conscious mind to regulate their behavior. But I think one of the most interesting pieces of evidence for how <laughs> mental functions are localized in the, in the physical <laughs> tissue of the brain is what's known as the Capgras delusion or the, the imposter delusion. So this is an interesting um, and, and really quite tragic neurological uh, dysfunction, um, but what you have to imagine is that you have a patient 
uh, who suffered some kind of traumatic brain injury. They've probably been unconscious for a fair period of time. They wake up. Uh, things seem to be okay. Uh, but then they come back to you with the, this problem that uh, something's wrong about their wife. They've noticed very subtle things in her behavior. Uh, they can't put their finger on it, but something feels weird. And they, they have this deep-seated belief that their wife has been replaced by an imposter. Right? And so you're like, what? What? Why? Uh, and neurology actually has the answer for, for how a head injury can create such a very specific detriment to your behavior. Um, so we're going to be looking at this medial areas of the brain. So here's a brain viewed laterally, right, from the outside. If I took the outer lobe off, like cut it straight down the middle, this is the view that you have of the, the medial areas on the interior of the brain. Um, and in particular, uh, our story is going to start with one area right here called the fusiform face area. Uh, it's on the fusiform gyrus, and it's active when people are processing faces. So, you know, neuroscientists are nothing if not imaginative in calling it the fusiform face area. But what's, what's kind of cool about this is that this brain area, if you are imaging a person's brain while they're looking at stimuli, so you're visually presenting a series of pictures while they're in an fMRI scanner, um, this activates preferentially to faces, right? And not scrambled faces, um, but only canonical faces of people or outlines. Uh, and then it sort of diminishes the less face-like the, st the stimuli become. Um, and then, interestingly, people who have damage to this area uh, can see but not recognize the faces of individuals. It's a condition called prosopagnosia. Um, it's, it's rare, but uh, frequent enough that it gets studied quite often. Uh, and they can tell you that they are you know, looking at a face, but they can't tell you whose face it is. So there's something about the, the assembling the face, uh, actually putting the name to the face, and recognizing a person uh, that this brain area appears to be involved in. And people who have damage to this area can't make that uh, connection. The other area that we want to talk about with respect to imposter syndrome is the limbic system, which is a distributed system of structures in the brain. Um, you can see those are sort of the colored areas here. Um, and they're involved in a, in a wide range of things, but in particular, lots of areas in the limbic system have been implicated in emotional processing, uh, assigning positive or negative value to things, uh, and sort of the, the, the visceral experience that goes with having emotion uh, seems to be related to this area. From the limited studies of patients with Capgras syndrome, the connection between these two areas is damaged. So you can recognize faces, but you don't feel the same emotional response that you used to feel when you see that person, right? So a person with Capgras syndrome, their, their fusiform face area is intact. They can look at their wife. They can recognize it's their wife. Their limbic system is intact. They can feel emotions in the usual way. Uh, nothing about that has really changed in their subjective experience. But they can't, the, seeing their wife, that they don't feel the same connection that this is the person they've loved and been spending their life with. And so the argument then is that there's this sort of implicit rationalization that this person isn't actually my wife. Right? Something is different. Something's wrong. I don't know what it is. But this person isn't my wife. They're an imposter. Right? So this is an example um, of how we think that a very... Um, you know, subtle change in, in brain architecture, in this case the connectivity between two regions, has a substantial impact on your mental processing, right? And actually being able to recognize and know the people around you. 
So we've seen some arguments then that neurons in the brain, or specifically collection of neurons, are very specific, right? They do, they do particular functions depending on the area of the brain that they're in. Uh, but the fantastic thing about neurons, the most exciting thing for me about neurons, is that they're highly adaptive. They're very plastic. They can change from one period of time to the next. So that's why I have this picture of this beautiful river here, right? Because a, a, a river is never the same. You can never step into the same river twice, right? You can, you know, you, all, all, there'll always be a, a river. Slowly over time, the rocks will erode and it might start to change a little bit. But, you know, the water is different from one split second to the next, right? Leaves that were there are gone. It changes with the season. So on all kinds of time scales, a river is constantly changing, even though the river is more or less always there. And the brain is very much the same. Your brain is changing all the time. Uh, and we didn't always know that this was the case. Uh, in fact, early on, we didn't know what the brain was made up of. And this is a quite interesting Nobel Prize battle between two men uh, back at the turn of the 20th century, between Camilo Golgi and Ramoni Cajal. Uh, Golgi believed, as did most people at the time, that the brain was actually just made up of this big net. It was just a web of tissue. Um, and somehow, right, the, the, this web did these calculations that allowed you to move and perceive and see what was going on. Um, Kayal suggested that it's not actually a, a single continuous net. It's a series of cells. And the cells can communicate with each other, right, and, and turn each other on and off. Uh, and Kayal had insight over Golgi because he actually didn't study um, mature specimens. Kayal looked at very young specimens where the neural density was less, and therefore individual neurons were actually easier to see. So the neuron doctrine ultimately won out. The brain is made up of billions of these cells, right? And they can communicate with each other through connections known as synapses. And over the course of your life, you grow new neurons in a process known as neurogenesis, right? Uh, you can also grow new connections between neurons in a process known as synaptogenesis, right? So these are the fundamental building blocks of neural processing. You have a series of cells, which are the neurons, which communicate with each other chemically um, across synapses. Within a neuron, the it's, it's electrical communication. But between neurons, it's largely chemical communication. That's a, a caveat, because there is an argument for um, electrical communication between neurons as well. But Far and away, the system we best understand is actually the um, neurotransmitter system. So, Now, as I said, the best estimates we have say that there's about 100 billion neurons in the adult brain. And then there's anywhere between 5 to 10,000 synapses per neuron. So <laughs> if you want to imagine all the possible states that your brain can exist in, right? the combinatorics are crazy. And people will throw things around in TED Talks that there's, you know, more states in the brain than there are particles in the universe. I don't know how particles in the universe gets estimated, but, um, you know, it is sufficiently complex, right? And the, the critical thing is that it's not only complex, but your brain's not static. It's dynamic. It's in flux, and it's changing. So neurogenesis uh, as, as part of development has been accepted for a long time, right? People have always understood that as you go from a, a, an infant to a juvenile to mature, you grow new neurons. Um, but it was actually rejected by neuroscience in the medical community that adults could grow new neurons, whether we were talking about humans or birds or rats. Um, we basically, everyone took it for granted that there were no new neurons added to the adult brain. 
and this was just impossible. And so if you had a head injury as an adult, that explained why um, your chances of recovery were much less compared to uh, you know, a child who had a comparable head injury. And it's true that your chances of recovery are diminished the later in life that you have a head injury, uh, but it's not true that you don't grow new neurons. Adults are perfectly capable of growing new neurons, and some of the earliest, earliest evidence of this was actually provided in the 1960s by this man, Joseph Altman, um, who was a, a neuroscientist at MIT at the time, but his work was largely ignored, uh, in part because of technical limitations. Um, basically, they had to do a visual approximation of what the cells were. And as you can see here, there, here's three different types of tissue that you'd have to differentiate with. And they're, they're colored. So just imagine all of these as sort of gray. Um, and now you have to distinguish between neurons, astrocytes, and oligodendrocytes. Right? It's, it's, it would be very hard to do, and only experts could really do it. And of course, experts had grown up knowing that adults don't grow new neurons. So it was very hard for Altman to get this work published. Uh, he ultimately did. He got it published in Science, Comparative Biology, in the Journal of Neuroscience. Um, but he was denied tenure at MIT. And he saw a progressive decrease in the grants that he actually got. So if you ever have a hard time getting a theory accepted, <laughs> it might ultimately be right. Or it might you know, ultimately be wrong. Um, but you always have the hope, the hope that it's going to be awesome someday. Um, and since that time, with technical advances that we've had in terms of radio tagging or chemical tagging of neurons, we've been able to very concretely demonstrate that you do get neurogenesis, the growth of brand new neurons in adult humans, birds, rats, monkeys, primates. Uh, and you can get it in many different regions of the brain, both in the sort of the cortical structures, the evolutionarily newer structures, and in the subcortical structures, the older parts of the midbrain and the hindbrain. Now, neurogenesis, this is the, my, like my favorite part here, is actually influenced by environmental factors. So there are things that we, we think actually lead to accelerated or decelerated growth of new neurons. Um, and it has to do with the environment that you're in. So we've shown in, in rats, uh, here's a kangaroo rat. Um, it wasn't actually shown in kangaroo rats, they just look better. Um, but enriched environments actually lead to increased neurogenesis. And the way you test this is pretty cool uh, because you, you put rats into a, a maze-like structure where they can kind of run around and play in this playground and there's sawdust and you know, little stuff for them to play with and the rats have a great time. Uh, and then you do a little thermal scanning to approximate how many calories they've burned uh, and then you go over to your other rats who only have a stationary treadmill and you tell those rats that they're gonna run and burn the exact same number of calories as the enriched environment rats. And then you have another group of control rats who do nothing, and they're the saddest rats of all. But the enriched environment rats grow more new neurons. They have more neural growth than rats who are equated on aerobic activity. So it's not enough just to run around. You actually have to have something to explore and experience, and that leads to greater neural growth. And not only does it lead to neural growth, but those changes in the number of neurons then explain performance on cognitive tests or memory tests that you can then give to these rats. The rats who have had the chance to grow up in that environment where they can explore and experience uh, complexity are you know, smarter than rats who have had a comparable amount of aerobic activity um, or rats who have basically not gotten to do much um, during their development. Yeah, David, question.
So if, when? I, I don't know. <laughs> on, a, on an individual level, the perception of rats, that would be well, tough. <laughs> right, right. So sure. Oh, right, right. Um, and that's a complex question that, that, I, that I don't have the, you know, the empirical data to support. But um, yeah, and I think that's true, that the, something that can be interesting and engaging for one person can be stale for somebody else. Yeah, I think that if you move, I think one, one of the parallels in physiology and other areas is that you can have something that is equally complex or demanding, um, but it's the variation and just having novel situations that drives adaptation. Um, so I, would, I, I think that, you know, although there's not a lot of evidence to support it in human brains, I think that something similar is certainly plausible, where even if you have a stimulating environment, changing your environment is important for development, not just having the stimulation. Yeah. yeah. How do you actually define complexity here? Because I'm trying to think about different human societies, right, across history. And it appears to me that each and every society is extremely complex in its own way. So uh, with the rats, it's sort of easier, right? So there is simple maze or complex maze or no maze at all. Yes. But so if we're thinking about humans and how that can you know, influence neurogenesis, mm -hmm. so how do we define, how do we measure complexity of environment? I think that's, uh, you know, it is very uh, tough to do, uh, and you could only think about it in terms of extremes. Um, and one of the, the sadder things is we know about from children who have had uh, abusive environments uh, growing up, right, for like weird, weird reasons. Um, children who have been, you know, locked in closets or cupboards or those sort of things, and their, their emotional development, but also their cognitive development is severely impaired. Um, and part of that is just not the, uh, the chance, right, to go out and exercise those abilities in the world. Um, but that does lead to actual changes in, in, in brain structure and morphology. So at extreme ends of the spectrum, we can make those kind of arguments that, like, yes, a, a really impoverished environment is bad for development. Um, but in terms of things that are pretty comparable, it's hard to say what would be more, more truly complex or, or, or that, than something else. No, so I mean, so there'll be there'll be differences, but I mean, there'll something severe enough as, as in terms of being an impoverished environment um, where you get no stimulation. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've been talking about um, growth of new neurons, which is is important to these behaviors, and as we, we showed in the rats, right, the actual changes in neural growth explain changes in behavior. Uh, but equally important is the growth of new synapses, or the connection between neurons, or killing old synapses and removing connections between neurons. And these are what actually allow you to sort of build associations and memories, because neurons that fire together wire together, to quote Donald Hebb. Um, the idea being that anytime you have concurrent activity uh, between two points, it's actually going to be easier for the same amount of stimulation to get the next neuron to fire. Um, and so these are processes that are referred to as long-term potentiation and long-term depression. Um, and it's you know, kind of an injustice that I have them as two bullet points on one slide. 
But uh, long-term potentiation basically means you're growing new synapses. Long-term depression means that you're pruning old synapses and getting rid of the things that you're not really using anymore. Um, and it's not so much that one of these processes is better than the other. They're probably both important for actually having adaptive brain function and being able to learn new information. Um, but long-term potentiation uh, has, at least to my knowledge, uh, been studied the most. And it's been studied a lot in animal models, and particularly birds and rats. Uh, but we do have experimental evidence showing um, synaptogenesis and long-term potentiation in human beings as well. Uh, and in this area of the brain, what's known as the hippocampus, which means seahorse in Greek, because it looks kind of like a seahorse when you cut one out of a brain. Um, and synaptic plasticity in the hippocampus has been found to be important to memory formation in humans and animals. So we know this experimentally uh, from work where we can go in and use various chemicals to block uh, protein synthesis that stops new uh, synapses from growing in the neuron. And then you can have an animal you know, learn a task, get in injected with this uh, synthesis inhibitor, and then their memory is okay. Or you can inject the animal beforehand, um, they'll, they'll learn the task, and they'll do okay in the short term, um, but then you know, the next trial or a few minutes later, it's like they don't know what they're supposed to do. They have no memory of the event that they just performed because you've prevented these synapses from forming, and you can have this happen sort of on short, medium, or, or long time scales, but you can really mess up um, an animal's memory if you prevent the, the growth of new synapses. From some non-experimental work, which is quite interesting, we see the importance of synaptic uh, generation or synapse generation in the hippocampus in food caching birds who actually have greater neural density um, and more synapses per neuron uh, than related birds that don't show food caching. Or London cab drivers, interestingly enough, have a larger hippocampus per brain volume than other drivers. They also have significantly better spatial memory. Right? So it's, it's quite impressive that we can show some of these effects. Um, but it does get back down to this idea that, that memories, which is so critical and so important to your survival and who you are as a person, right, is really a function of something that's happening on a cellular level in the brain. And I'm not trying to say that that's all it is or reduce it in any way, but this is an important dimension that we didn't know about previously. I have no idea who that is. Who is Sydney Jane? Oh, all right. Well, this is what happens when you get your images from Google. <laughs> Technological reliance. So... Right. <laughs> what is the big picture of this neuroplasticity? Well, it's it's really impressive, and um, your brain. It does, I mean, it, it's kind of a weird thought, but just the idea that your brain is constantly changing over the over time, uh, and you're not one person from one day to the next necessarily. Like you can obviously look back and be glad you're not the same person you were when you were 15 years old, right? But this is something else, right? This is your 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 brain is physically changing, and that underlies changes in your beliefs and your ideology, the things you remember from one moment to the next. 
right? The brain that recalls a memory isn't even the same brain that stored it. Because if you think about what this theory implies, if it was exactly the same, you wouldn't have that memory. Having a memory right, requires some change in the brain, right? because it's a neural representation that has been modified that we perceive as new information. Now, how that transition gets made is a big question. right? But knowing that synaptic growth is important in memory formation is something that is well established. So this kind of flexibility allows us to do some really amazing things, right? Because in order to be a, an intelligent actor in a changing world, you need to be able to modify and update your behavior in order to respond appropriately to a changing environment. Um, but it also has some really fascinating implications on the medical side. So this is a, just a, a devastatingly amazing image. Uh, this is a, a, a seven-year-old girl who had a left hemispherectomy at the age of three. That means an entire hemisphere of her brain was removed um, because she had such severe epilepsy. Right? She was having hundreds of seizures a day, uh, and it would have been, you know, just so. The, the, the argument was then that her quality of life would have been so poor that she's better off having this section of her brain removed. Now, they did it at a very young age, she was three years old. Uh, and you can see the hemisphere, left hemisphere is gone. The, the gap has filled in with cerebral spinal fluid, uh, but the rest of the brain, uh, thanks to a clean surgery, has developed relatively normally. Now, this scan was taken when this girl was seven. Um, she's bilingual in Turkish and Dutch. She has a normal IQ. Um, she does have some mild weakness in her right arm and right leg. But otherwise, she's perfectly fine, functional, you know, bilingual, which is... Another, you know, one again more languages than I speak, and I have both hemispheres to my knowledge, so that's pretty good. Right? Um, now, obviously, if you were to do this in a, in a fully grown person, um, the, the damage would be so severe they couldn't live outside a hospital. Right? But in a, in a young person, where the, the brain has had chances to adapt over the course of their life, the functions that normally would exist in this hemisphere, like when they do brain scans of people who have had a hemispherectomy, you find that they've actually been pushed over into this hemisphere. So oftentimes you'll hear people talking about um, the left side of the brain being more verbal than the right side of the brain, which is more spatial, which is true for right-handers. Uh, you see most language-based activity in the left hemisphere. In this girl, it's actually verbal and spatial on the same side. Yeah? So when different people get these, uh, these sort of things done to them, do they find that the same functions migrate to the same areas, or do they migrate to they, they do migrate um, to different areas, um, and it, it, it kind of depends on um, the individual person and the extent of the, the damage. But there are some situations where they migrate in very specific ways. So uh, I don't know about in hemispherectomies, but you do get what's um, sensory modal plasticity, so where, for instance, someone who's blind uh, from birth, uh, you'll find that what would normally be their visual cortex processes auditory information um, or tactile information. And so it's basically the, the, the brain feels like, well, this isn't really being used, right? So it co-ops that section of cortex and that real estate then gets devoted to other functions. Are 
Yeah, so, so I've. Well, I think um, there, you know, there are there are claims about uh, like if 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 you're blind, you know, you you have much better hearing than the average person, um, and or you know, vice versa. And I, I I don't really know how much that's true. I know there are some individual cases of people who 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 have been blind and and shown really remarkable um, hearing capability. Um, but I don't know how much it's true for people on average. So. But yeah, I mean, this this yeah, so this was published in in the Lancet in two thousand two, and there there are several instances of this, um, and I think it's really quite amazing, but also quite optimistic, which is is the nice thing. Um, and part of the reason why synaptic plasticity is so interesting is because it really suggests that. Um, you know, the biologizing, or the biologization, the biologizing of the mind, right, doesn't mean that it's determined or fixed or genetic, which is one of the things that, that often happens when you start invoking neuroscience and biology, that you're, you're making an argument that people are who they're going to be as soon as you leave the womb. But synaptic plasticity, right, and the changes that we've seen in, in instances like this really suggest that people aren't a biological state, they're a biological process, right? And this allows you to move and evolve and change and adapt uh, from one period in your life to the next. Um, and it's true that we don't understand how the brain creates the mind, as you know, my, my talk tried to tease you into thinking, but um, we, we know that it is deeply, right, and inextricably intertwined with philosophical concepts of the mind. And, and neuroscience is a very young discipline where we're only recently, in the last 20 years or so, getting the tools to really study the brain um, in, in the most meaningful ways that we can. And, and being able to study things experimentally now that were laughed at, you know, years ago. If you wanted to do a dissertation on emotion and affect and neuroscience in the 1970s, you were pretty much out of luck, right? There wasn't much you could do. Now there's whole conferences dedicated to that idea, right? Uh, so it's, it's a really exciting um, field. It has lots of information uh, that I've you know, touched the surface on in this talk. So I, I hope that you've you know, picked up on at least a few things you can go and, and look for yourselves. Um, and otherwise, I just want to uh, thank you all for coming, uh, acknowledge my supervisor, Nikki Hodges in the School of Kinesiology, uh, the, the institutions that pay for me to be here, uh, and Green College, who I pay to be here. Uh, <laughs> but it's well worth it. Um, so uh, thank you very much, and hopefully we can do some questions. <laughs>
Yeah. Sort of curious about this when you kind of hinted at this idea of modularity, um, not so much of the brain, but in terms of the faculty. Mm. And while well, it's kind of cool to see the picture of the person that's half a brain and the fact that they're relatively functional, it, I guess I'm a little skeptical that that the mind is uh, sort of infinitely plastic, is the way it sort of appears. Right. Um, so I guess my question is like, what's the state of the art these days in terms of how people are dealing with this? I mean, look, 20 years ago, this conflict between plasticity and, and modularity or rigidity almost. What's the state of the, the art? Yeah, well, I think it uh, it depends a lot on the area of the brain that you're you're asking about. And, and certainly things that are older um, tend to be more fixed. And there, there is less neuroplasticity for things that aren't actually in the neocortex. And part of that um, has to do with the organization of the cortex itself. So if you, if you think about, like, my f arm is my brainstem, here's, like, my thalamus and lots of other, you know, details of brain uh, that evolved. And lizards have these, fish have these, birds have these. They're, these are, like, the essential functions in life. And those aren't very plastic. Now, the neocortex wraps over the top of that. Um, and the interesting thing about the cortex is it has a really similar structure anywhere you go in it. It, it, it changes, but there's always you know, about six layers, and the projections between the layers are about the same. Uh, what really changes is what projects into that area and what projects out of that area. Um, and so the, the cortex then, because of this cytoarchitectural homology, it's, it's similar, um, it, what really depends on what you're plugging into it and then what you're going to get out, which might be one of the reasons why the cortex is more plastic than other areas. But yeah, even as, as Ben points out, it's, it's certainly not infinite. Um, there are some really astounding cases, but in, in, in most instances, um, you know, recovery of function is, is limited. Yeah. Dimitri. Um, great, thanks. So I guess one of the obvious conclusions of your talk is that, you know, we have to build genes in the form of a maze so that you have to get to the equipment through a lot of and that actually will get the uh, most effective. But all right, now it's into the serious part of it. So, <laughs> so you have said this, this, this wonderful idea that, that humans are a biological process, right? The mind is a biological process, not a biological state. Yep. Now, and this, is, this might be, again, it's kind of the beloved old-fashioned you're not supposed to ask the neuroscientists, but the neuroscientists are not still. Um, so, yeah, of course, when we're speaking about neurons, we're speaking probabilistically, right? We don't really know, we can't really uh, say that this is this is the state, A is the state, B, and that's it. But now, probabilities can also be computed. Now, if you push the idea of the biological process to the extreme, we'll end up with the, again, with the idea that there's probably so much, so much immutability that we can achieve it today. Mm -hmm. And yet, still, uh, imagine that we have this you know, approaching the infinity computational powers, will we be ever able to predict even these, even the probabilistic uh, states of this biological process that with our mind? Uh, that's, I mean, that's a very tough question. Um, and in, in very limited instances, we can, we can do that. So the, the very, um, what, neuroscientifically optimistic answer is, is that yes, we can, because we can do things now like look at an fMRI and say what that person's thinking about. 
But that's only if we know the 12 things that we told them they were allowed to think about beforehand. Right? We, can, we can pick among those 12. So it, 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 it's limited in, in its, its ability, obviously, but um, the, the computational power you know, outside the brain, like in terms of you know, artificial computers, is, is growing all the time. Uh, and so that, that facilitates our understanding of what's going on in the brain tremendously. Um, and then if we can have you know, more, more complex models and more accurate models, right, that can, can predict things validly, um, that would be a, a tremendous boon to then being able to fix or repair uh, functions in, in people who have damage. So I think yeah, my, my, uh, a cautious yes would be my answer. <laughs> yeah. Ah, well, so that's an interesting question. Um, and I've always thought that the, the nature versus nurture issue was kind of a weird question because it's always nature and nurture, right? It, these are two processes that um, aren't additive but are multiplicative, right? So that if, if, you, if you can say that even 1% of my behavior is nature, and the other 99% is nurture, or you know, flip it around. Um, it doesn't matter that it's 1% versus 99%. Take 1% away, 99% times zero is still zero, right? Genes only have meaning in the environment, and the environment only can modify what is granted by genetics. So um, it's, it's, you know, it's tough to say what, what's nature versus nurture. Everything's a mixture of both. But that caveat out of the way, right? um, I think that... There, there, there is a lot of variation um, with, in terms of what children are endowed with before they have a lot of experience. Uh, and you'll see very strong individual differences in children um, in some capacities, but that's not very predictive necessarily of where those children are going to end up is, is the main issue. Yeah. yeah. So Doria hopefully provided us with the background in your multidisciplinary background. Yep. Um, and, you know, Neuroscience is a field that obviously has some very close and direct connections to psychology, to things like computer science, uh, philosophy of mind, and so on. Like there's a tight group there. Uh, but in terms of applications to a broader, you know, interdisciplinary sort of approach, where would you say, you know, certainly taking a little factoid from neuroscience and making broad predictions about Republicans or any other big <laughs> social group isn't very productive? Where would you say the useful avenues into other areas of social science or or wherever else? Well, I think the most most interesting thing, I mean, maybe not productive in terms of, like, good luck getting grant money, right, but to look at uh, (laughs) aesthetic experience uh, through through neuroscience is really interesting. Um, And I, I think there's, in some cases, reticence to the idea on the neuroscience side in that like well you want to study why people feel good and why they like nice things like that's not science uh and then there's on the the aesthetic side that if you bring in and try to objectify things you you lose the quality of the experience um and i think those are both you know legitimate cautions you 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 want to be careful to conduct science in a robust and meaningful way regardless of what your subject matter is uh, and you certainly don't want to say that because, you know, someone, this, you know, this, this brain area, this constellation of brain areas 
um, is more active when someone is happy or sad that I understand what sadness is, right? It's, it's something much more than that. Um, but, but adding this physiological detail, you know, it, it, it only adds. It can't, I don't think it can subtract from, from um, philosophical appreciation of those kinds of things. So I think that's a really exciting area. Yeah. Um, we talked a lot about like, uh, the, the potential for this new uh, genesis of connections and neurons and things like that. Uh, I heard an idea of like, going backwards and people with PTSD, like, you can delete those little connections. And oh, yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 really quite an interesting experimental treatment doing memory erasure for people with post traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and Kieran might actually know more about this than I do. Do you, do you know those those studies where they're using like um, yeah, the military's investment? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Great, right. They showed, I think you mentioned it earlier, that if you block protein synthesis, which is required to build new synapses and so on, then you can cause the rat to basically forget the memory when it's re-exposed to something. So it seems like you build a memory when you experience something, and they had rats in the cage that shocked them, basically. So they build a fear memory when they were in that cage. And if you put them back in that cage, somehow it seems to reactivate the memory, and then you can block the consolidation of memory again. And so they actually tried to vivify a study of this with people who were in 9-11 or, I don't know, in the building or in the area and had PTSD from 9-11. And they found a chemical which does a similar thing in people, um, but not as severely because you don't want to be blocking for these synthesis in human brains. But they basically did a similar experiment, and they had results that looked promising, but this is years ago. I don't know if they ever published that. But, yeah, it seems like, in theory, it works. And I think they did a similar stuff with electric. poking the brain right in more or less sophisticated ways but yeah yeah no it's it's really kind of um like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind yeah if anyone's seen that movie i don't know i didn't really like it but (laughs) it's neither here nor there yeah gave us a good overview of the history and kind of like the current state of things of neuroscience what are you most excited for in the future um yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of things. Um, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm most excited for is um, neural prosthetics that, that people are using now, um, where you can actually control a robotic arm uh, through actual neural impulses that would have otherwise been going to your own arm, but now you know has been mangled or lost or, or for whatever reason. Uh, and you can, with some very complex math and some very complex mechatronics, um, you can record electrical activity either from the muscles or like from the nerves themselves, and then map that electrical activity onto particular servos uh, in a robotic arm uh, that then you know can can move on their own with with a pretty sophisticated degree of control. Uh, and so it's it's really giving people quite an opportunity to uh, get their life back, um, which is really amazing. So that's that's one of the areas that I'm most excited for. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to find this down to one question. There's a little book called, um, a guy like called Jenna Weird Love, which is um, about, they, they simplify it down to the volume brain theory. Oh, yep. The reptilian brain, the mammal brain, and the human brain. Mm-hmm. Simplify it down. I think that still maps on. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, yeah, that's something that people still talk about. But yeah. So with AP, there's this uh, large discussion in this book about heartbreak, right? Mm. And about how you achieve limbic resonance, right? And then when the limbic resonance is lost, right, you experience this this trauma, heartbreak, mm. and how it goes from love to hate because limbic brain doesn't speak this. And I'm interested in this because they talk quite a bit about how the limbic brain um, understands metaphor, poetry like these sort of other things that the neocortex doesn't understand. Mm. Which is why you write bad poetry when you're heartbroken. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm curious <laughs> but I'm curious about this thing they talk about which they talk about limbic resonance. Yeah. Right. So that's not a term I'm familiar with. But so it's the idea where you, when, you, when you go skin to skin, eye to eye, yep. you know, mother to child, mother to lover, that there's a, there's a, a mutual process that happens between the brain. Yep. Right. Yeah, there, there's, so there's some evidence of this I, I, I've certainly seen in uh, mother and infant pairs. Um, and they're not, I, I, I've mostly seen it, this is kind of a technical point, but I've mostly seen it done with electroencephalography, which is a, a way of recording electrical activity from the brain, but it's very hard to tell sort of like where that activity is coming from. Um, but it seems to be a pretty reliable effect. But one of the other things that I've seen that, that's kind of interesting um, and doesn't, doesn't get to where it's at in the brain again, but is a, is a really cool effect, um, is that uh, people have a, a, a visual system where if, if I see another person you know, performing an action, some of the same neurons that are active in my brain when I perform that action turn on. These are what they call mirror neurons. Right? So there's, some people argue that these might um, provide part of the basis for empathy. Um, and one interesting demonstration of this is that you can... Uh, motions that I perform um, or, or things that I have information about, sort of my body can cancel those things out or tell me what, that they're coming from my body or something else. Uh, and if you have someone else sitting in a room um, and you poke them in the arm, and I, that's all I can see is this, this person's arm getting poked uh, across the room. Uh, I know that it's that person's arm getting poked. But now if you anesthetize my arm, now I have no sensory feedback coming from my arm and I'm watching this other person getting their arm poked, I start to feel like I'm getting poked in my anesthetized arm. Wow. Um, <laughs> apparently. I've never had this happen to me personally, but apparently that's what you know, some, some folks have proven, I think, down at University of California, San Diego. Uh, but, um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of crazy that there, there might be a real strong resonance between any two people on the, you know, the fact that we're both human beings and... You know, maybe that's more philosophical. Maybe that's more purely that we're you know shaped kind of alike, so our brain's doing some kind of computation. But yeah, yeah, it's really uh, interesting the, the sort of resonance you can have between being an actor and an observer, or between yeah being a mother and a child. Yeah. Um, right. Thanks again. Um, so there was one article in the Onion about this job. I think it's called Agile. Yes. The, receiving the Nobel Prize because of all the you know scientific achievements done by people on this journey. On Adderall, yeah, so, yeah. Um, the question here is: Are we looking towards the future where we are fed some kind of jobs on a daily basis in order to boost our uh, newer generation, middle generation, snapper generation, and even more sci-fi? Like, are we looking towards the future where we can buy jobs to fashion our own personalities, right? By this and remember this. Yeah, I think that that's a very um, critical question that's becoming more important as time goes on uh, because it's, it's more and more something that people can face in their daily life. Like, you know, if you had been in 1930, right, and claimed you had a, a, a drug that could make people super attentive and would improve their memory, right, 
it would sound like science fiction. Uh, and now those things are realities. Um, and we are here for the upcoming next show, so we should stop listening to the lecture. The lecture was about fat, drugs, and electricity, understanding how the brain creates the mind. If you want to listen to the rest part of the lecture, please visit our website, citr.ca, and check on the campus lecture series program. Butros, Butros Gali, put down your gun and listen to... Are you aware music that has something to say on CITR 101.9 Vancouver? Mm-hmm. 